Well, amen. Good morning, faith family. Hey, it's good to see all of you here. Thankful for our worship team and for Brother Dan uh, reading the text this morning and praying for us. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to journey through Romans chapter 9. Prayerfully, we'll get through all five of these uh, opening verses, one through five. Now, full confession, whenever I was mapping out uh, my sermon plan, I usually map out between three to six months ahead of time and do a real skeleton of an outline to understand where uh, we're going. But I I fully love fresh baked bread, so every, every Monday, I mean, I'm just in like that particular text trying to dig through it. And as I was trying to study Romans 9 as a whole, man, it didn't take long at all for me to realize there's no way that I'm going to be able to preach through uh, it in its, its entirety in one sermon. Uh, so we're going to do our best to get through the first five verses. I will say, I remember last week I, I mentioned that today we would talk about some of the different viewpoints of predestination, election, uh, the sovereignty of God. We will scratch the surface on some of that today, uh, but you need to make sure that you're catching up in all of the sermons because as we go through 9, 10, and 11, we'll see that there's heavy continuity there. So we need to understand the book of Romans as a whole in order to understand exactly where Paul is going through. And I'll do my best each week to keep us caught up, uh, but you'll need to go back and listen if you miss a Sunday. Maybe you have to work on a Sunday, you're traveling, you're on vacation, whatever the case may be, sick. Make sure that you're catching up uh, the best that you possibly can because it'll be, it'll be critical for you uh, to understand these different doctrines that we are journeying through together. So we'll look at, again, verses 1 through 5 and see Paul's heartbeat as he jumps in to Romans chapter 9. Before we dive in, I want us to pray together. As most of you know, tomorrow is September 11th. Um, the anniversary of 9-11, what took place in 2001. And I will say, if you, if you were alive whenever that happened, uh, when the towers were struck and you, you saw the chaos that was going on uh, on the news, if, if you were alive, you know exactly where you were when all of that happened. And just the processing of trying to figure out uh, what, what that means, what's the next step uh, for us in our nation and all the residual things that have played out since then. Uh, but I think particularly today about the families who uh, suffered great loss, personal loss that day. I uh, think about uh, the one who realized that my, my parent is not coming home, dad's not coming home, uh, mom's not coming home, uh, the parent that lost their child, my child is not coming home, and the list can go on and on and on. But uh, it would do us well to pray and just ask the Lord for his his blessing and his guidance and his wisdom and to pray for uh, the families who have an, an, an extra mark on them when this day comes around, uh, this great tragedy that we uh, suffered as, as a nation. So I would ask you if you would bow your heads in a spirit of prayer all throughout this room. Let's take a moment to pray together. <clears throat> Lord, as we gather, we do celebrate uh, your glory and your goodness. But God, we also acknowledge the shadow of the anniversary of 9-11. God, we remember 9-11, uh, 2001, and we mourn the lives uh, lost in New York City, Washington, D.C., and on Flight 93. God, we do lament death's reign, both the visible and invisible forces of evil. Lord, the, the principalities and powers of this dark world Father, the evil that lurks in the heart of all men, including our own. 
Together we come before you today declaring Psalm 146, which teaches us not to put our trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Lord, when that man's breath departs, he returns to earth, and on that very day his plans perish, but blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. We pray all of these things in the powerful and mighty name of King Jesus and all God's people said, amen and amen. Wait, listen, before getting too deep into our delve of predestination, I think it's good for us to see how important it is for us to have a predisposition of love towards those who do not know Christ. Now, admittingly, we know that this term loved used in our you know, language today is pretty, it's pretty broad. Uh, for example, I can love my wife and I can also love Chick-fil-A's new pimento cheese sandwich. True story, last service, when I mentioned that, there was someone that started clapping. So you can see that that term love can be used for lots of different things. I see my friend David Eichel, he and I share a love of shoes. So when we see a, a, a shoe deal, man, David sent it to me, I'm sending it back to him, and, and you know, my wife doesn't love that, right? So, so anyway, like there's, we use this term love all over the place. We need to understand that when we talk about a predisposition of love towards those who know not Christ, we're talking about a deep, heartfelt love that recognizes that there are people out there that do not know Jesus. They have not experienced the saving faith uh, that is found in Jesus. And, and we are called to share the good news of the gospel with them. And we need to have a predisposition of love in order for us to ever understand the issue of predestination rightly. And the reason I bring this out is because in verses 1 through 5 of Romans 9, we see Paul displaying this type of love incredibly so. He displays a heart of a missionary, a heart of an evangelist, and he cared deeply that others would see Christ and respond to his call and trust in him. He cared so deeply about this that it was a passion point of his to give his life to the mission of God. It is said that he traveled over 10,000 miles during his missionary journeys, which is an incredible feat in that day. Uh, walking somewhere close to 20 miles a day. He crossed land and he crossed sea and he visited countries that we would find in modern atlases as Greece and Turkey and Syria. Each part of the journey was grueling. Each part of the journey was rough. Uh, Paul actually describes his journey in 2 Corinthians 11, 25 and 27. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. 
I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers and danger from bandits and danger uh, from my fellow Jews and danger from Gentiles and danger in the city and danger in the country and danger at sea and danger from false believers. I've labeled, I've, I've labored, I've told, I've gone without sleep, I've known hunger, I've known thirst, I've often gone without food, I've been cold, I've been naked. Paul has genuinely gone through it as he went about his missionary journeys that we read of in the Word of God. So to me, and this will speak to some of you in the room, this does not sound like someone who operates under the label as one of the frozen chosen. So what that means is there are some people who believe in the doctrine of predestination to mean that if God has everything figured out, then all I have to do is just sit on my behind because it's going to be what's going to be anyway. And that's not how Paul operated. Yes, he believed in the sovereignty and authority and, and, and you know, the bigness of who God is. However, that did not halt him. It only poured fuel into his desire to go and tell others about Jesus. You see, this doctrine of predestination did not sideline him at all. It seemed to cause him to be spurred forward to tell others about Christ. And it's important for us to keep that in our minds as we walk through Romans chapter 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11. So keep that passionate evangelistic zeal of the Apostle Paul who's penning these words in mind as we continue through Romans 9, 10, and 11. But today we want to talk about Paul's burden uh, in verses 1 through 5. And this is a burden to tell others about Jesus. We can be assured of our salvation. And this is great news for us that we can be assured of our salvation. Now, I think historically Baptists have gotten this assurance issue wrong on some level, and, and, and we are a Baptist church, but I want you to understand what I'm saying here. There was a time, and I think this probably still happens today, I'm, I'm certain that it does, but there's a time where Baptists would say, once saved, always saved, and they would run people through the proverbial cattle chute. And, you know, as long as you said the sinner's prayer and you got baptized, kind of ran through this chute, you would get a certificate, kind of like the ear tag that the cow gets, saying, hey, you're good. And as long as you have that tag, man, you, you are going to make it to heaven, no worries. Like, you, you don't have anything to worry about. You can live actually however you want to live, and it's fine because you have your ticket to heaven. I, I, think, that's, I think that's the wrong way for us to view this doctrine of assurance. To know that if we are saved, scripturally speaking, we are always saved. And so the, the goal of me saying this is in no way meant to make you doubt your salvation. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of hitting the gas on you can be assured of your salvation, but the preliminary thing that we need to make sure is in front of us is, man, have we settled in our heart that we truly know Christ? Like, have we been changed by his power? Do we now responsibly so operate in a way like Paul is operating with this zeal, this desire for others to know this Christ that has changed my life? There is a reality of cultural Christianity that abounds today. And many think that because of their Christian heritage or being raised in a Christian home, that it automatically causes them to be a Christian or even because they got baptized or, you know, said the sinner's prayer, that that caused them to be Christian. But the truth is we have to really dig deep within our soul and ask the Lord to examine us. Do we really know him? Once again, important for me to state, this is not meant, because I know a lot of people struggle with this, it's not meant to make you doubt your salvation at all. It is meant to make you really assess, do I know Christ? If you know Christ, you're going to have this heart's desire to 
live for him and a, and a heart's desire to want others to experience this Jesus who has changed you. Now, the good news is John says in 1 John 5 that we can be assured, and he says it this way, this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, life that is found in his son. If you have the son, the Bible says in verse 12 there, chapter 5, 1 John, if you have the son, you have life. If you have not the son, you have not life. And then verse 13 says that I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God. Why do I write these? That you may know that you have eternal life. Well, pastor, you've talked about predestination. You've also talked about a, a burden for the loss. Now you're talking about assurance. Why do those things matter and how do they come together? Well, here's why they matter. They matter because in order for us to understand fully God's sovereign hand, uh, to understand soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, we have to understand that, man, we can know him. We can be saved. We can be assured of the salvation. And then third, as we experience God and are changed by God, that's going to push us forward with hearts of of burden to go and tell others who know not Jesus. They may have church life. They may have some kind of experience with, you know, the church, but are they a part of the church? And Paul is kind of speaking of this with Israel. You can be a part of Israel and simultaneously not be a part of Israel. And he wants those that have not trusted in the grand narrative of the Bible, the finished work of Jesus, to trust in Jesus. One pastor put it this way. He said, the importance of these five verses to us is that we never want our hearts to become callous or lukewarm towards those who do not believe in Jesus. Just because we learn about God's sovereign election, it in no way whatsoever pulls, pours cold water on the flame of our heart. It, no, it doesn't pour cold water on that at all. It causes us to say, you know what? Because of how glorious God is and because of man's responsibility to trust in him and to respond to him and God's call of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we must go out and share the good news of the gospel. The last thing I'll say before we jump into these five verses, I know this is crazy long introduction, but hang in there with me. The last thing I'll say is Charles Spurgeon put it like this. I'm going to paraphrase some of what he said. He said, if you think about God's sovereignty, the doctrine of, of predestination and election, and you also think about man's responsibility, which both are in the word of God. God is in control because he is God. If he were not in control, he would not be God. But man also has responsibility to respond to Jesus. We have responsibility to tell everyone about Jesus so that they may respond to Jesus and a burden to see the world saved. Both of these doctrines are on the same train track. Now, where these tracks intersect, there is this thing called the mystery of God to where we in our humanness, we cannot fully understand the deepest mysteries of God. And that is not a cop-out statement. This is just a reality. We need to be okay not understanding where some of these things intersect. And Spurgeon was okay saying, I don't know the mystery of God and how the sovereignty of God aligns with man's responsibility fully. I don't know that fully, but I do know that both are true and both are scriptural. So we run like Paul ran, sharing the gospel with passionate zeal, simultaneously knowing that God is sovereign. He's going to open those doors. He's going to be the one that, it, that, that saves because the Bible does say that we plant, we water. Who gives the increase? God gives the increase. And so both can be true. The Bible says what it says, and we have to be okay with that. But again, the, the point of today's message is to see Paul's heart for those who are rejecting Jesus and his desire for them to trust in him. All right, the introduction's done. Let's try to get these verses in. Here's verse, verses 1 and 2. 
Uh, verse 1, Paul says in chapter 9, I'm speaking the truth. And then he just kind of affirms this truth by saying it's in Christ. And he says that uh, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is everything I've said up until this point, right? Think about, think about just the tail end of chapter 8. Think about the beauty of chapter 8 talks about there being no condemnation for those that are in Christ. talks about if God is for us, who can be against us? How we're more than conquerors if we're in Christ Jesus and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul is putting a stamp and saying, this is the truth, man. But he says, you know what's also true is what I'm about to say, which a side note is men and women of God should be truthful people. Our word should be our bond. We shouldn't shade the truth. We shouldn't tell half-truths because both of those are whole lies. We should operate in a spirit of truth. But what is, what is he speaking the truth on as he moves forward? Now remember, the Bible, when it's written, there's not chapters and verses. So Paul didn't finish chapter 8, take a break because his hand was cramping, and take a few months to think about this next level of writing that he has to uh, turn in by a different, you know, by a certain point. That's not what he's doing. He's continuing to write here. And so in this continuation, what is it that's coming next that is so important that he wants, he wants everyone to understand that he's telling the truth? He says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, Paul has sorrow and Paul has continual grief in his heart. Why? Because he feels deeply for those who are separated from God, for unbelieving Israel, for their rejection of the Messiah. He is deeply bothered by this. The word sorrow in the Greek translates to megas, which, you know, you and I know in, in the English language for that to be mega. That's where we get that word. And so he's saying that this is, this is exceeding sorrow. This sorrow is deep sorrow. It's not just man, I'm upset that my Gators are terrible at football this year. It's like, no, nah, man, I'm exceedingly sorrowful uh, because there are a group of people over here who, you know, by, by, by way of heritage, we align. However, they don't know Jesus. They have rejected Jesus. And I have this enormous, heart-wrenching, heartbreaking sorrow, and he calls it unceasing grief. This is the kind of grief that causes you not to sleep well at night. It's the kind of grief that causes you not to eat well. You are just so bothered by this, and Paul's heart is literally wrenching over the reality that there are people of his kinsmanship who know not Jesus. And he goes on to share this reality in verse 3, which we'll share in just a moment. But I want to I highlight the heart of Paul here. I want to highlight how deeply he cares for the lost. I want to highlight that because this is critical for us. I, I remember meeting a good buddy of mine who became a good buddy of mine. Uh, I remember meeting him for the first time. His name was Skipper. Uh, Skipper is roughly my age, and Skipper was someone who grew up in the church, and if you were to ask him if he were a Christian, he would have said yes, but the reality is he knew how to act in certain rooms, and he was far from God, just doing his own thing, his own way, living however he wanted. And he was a successful businessman, made pretty good money and kind of lived his life however he wanted and he was out on a hunting trip one day as a young adult and uh, he'd been married a few years at this point had had a, a kid or two and he was out on a hunting trip and it was on this trip while he was in the tree stand that skipper found out that he had been found out you see skipper had been running around on his wife and he had done this for some time 
And he was just living life however he wanted to live. He thought he could live a life of duplicity. He thought that as long as I acted a certain way around church folks and a certain way around my business, I could, you know, hide some of these other things in my life and everything's going to be okay. I can clean it all up. But as Skipper came home and began to work through this with his wife and uh, realized the damage that he had caused, it was like God used that to get his attention. And it was at that moment that Skipper realized that even though he had this church background, he did not know Jesus. So Skipper gives his life to Jesus, man, he's baptized in the Suwannee River, and, and, and you know, he, he was an outdoorsman, and from that day forward, he, he tells his testimony, he says, from that day forward, I could not get enough of telling others about my Savior. Who am I that he would save me and redeem me? And that marriage was reconciled, and he and his wife were used to do incredible things to the glory of God. Now, unfortunately, Skipper lost his life just a couple of years ago as a young man, but I think about Skipper, and here's what I think about. Every time I talk to Skipper, this isn't hyperbolic in, 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 the, in the least sense. It's not at all hyperbolic. Every time I talked with Skipper, every time I saw him, he would give me a big old bear hug. He'd pick me up, and every time, every time, as quickly as he could, he would pivot our conversation to Christ, and he would have tears. I mean, he would be emotional every single time, tears in his eyes whenever he talked about his Savior. And his passion and desire for others to know Christ, man. For me, when I see Paul's heart here, I can't help but think about Skipper. I can't help but think about that desire he had to see others know Jesus. And this is the very heart that Paul is displaying. Let's continue to look at that heart. Verse 3, he says, For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, Paul knew that I could never do anything to atone for the sins of my brothers and sisters. He says, but you know what? If I could, if I could do anything in the world to atone for their sin, I wish that I could do that. I would go to hell for them so that they could be free, so that they could have life in Christ. Man, this level of compassion, this level of selflessness is so Christ-like. The only way that people can love in this manner is in Christ is produced from the Lord. It is distinctly Christ-like love. It is distinctly Christ-like compassion and distinctly a Christ-like burden for the lost. As I, look at, as I look at what Paul is saying here, I can't help but assess my own heart and to ask myself, do I have that same type of burden? You know, this is why we exist as a church. We exist for a lot of things, but the main thrust of why we exist is we want those who do not know God to know him. We want the world around us, and we have a big world right outside our doors. We want Apex and beyond to know that Jesus loves them, man. We want them to know that there is hope in Christ. We want them to respond to the gospel. We want them to know that Jesus is the answer to their deepest needs. And they're running around trying to fill the hole that only Christ can fill with all kinds of things. But we want them to see that it is Christ that they need. And Paul felt this so much so that he would walk 20 plus miles a day. He would get on an old boat. He would do all these things just to share the good news of the gospel. But my fear is that oftentimes you and I, we can become so mechanical in our faith that we forget why we exist as a church and we just kind of tie church as a nice accessory to our lives and we kind of go through life forgetting our why, forgetting our purpose, forgetting our destination. Listen, there's no greater thing to know that God has a destination for us. 
God has a purpose for our life. And brother and sister, God has a purpose for you. And he wants you not to be mechanical in your faith. He doesn't want me to be mechanical in my faith. He doesn't want us just to gain knowledge for the sake of gaining knowledge. No, we come to worship and we go to Bible study and all the things so that our affections for Christ can grow, so that our affections for the lost can grow. He doesn't want us to be like seminarians. And I graduated from two different seminaries, so I'm not just picking on them. But he doesn't want us to be like seminarians where we can get into a bubble and discuss all the nuances of theology. All the while, there's a lost and hurting and broken world outside of us, and we're nitpicking everything to death to where we are not sharing the gospel with the world that needs it. And Paul is saying, I don't care what anybody thinks, man. I was Saul. I got a background. I did a lot of bad things, but God saved me. And there are many people that think I shouldn't be saved. And you know what? I kind of feel that way too because, oh, wretched man that I am. But Christ is my deliverer, and he's going to use me to share the good news. And I want Israel, my brothers and sisters who have not trusted in Christ, to know him so much so that I would go to hell if I could, if only they would repent, if only they would trust in him. You know, we take our kids once they turn 10 on birthday trips. And so I've taken Zane for the last several years and went hiking a couple years ago in Tallulah Gorge. And last year we did the Creeper Trail, but with me still healing with my leg, we couldn't do that this year. So I said, man, what you want to do? He said, I tell you what, Daddy, I want to go to Myrtle Beach and watch the Myrtle Beach Pelicans minor league baseball team. I was like, cool. I've never been there. We can do that. I said, what else do you want to do? This is what we've been doing the last two days. I said, what else do you want to do? He said, I want to go to Florence, Daddy. I want to go to that store, uh, Boosie's. I was like, bro, it's Bucky's, first of all. But uh, so we went to a baseball game and to a gas station. It was cool, right, birthday trip. But the neat, the neat thing about it is the time that we get to talk. And I, I was able to share with him. He asked me questions about church. It's kind of weird being a PK, right, pastor's kid. Like you see things that other people don't get to see, and they're here for church all day, and, and they love it. I praise God for that. And you know, Zane serves in our shine ministry, and I love that he loves to do that and all the things. But he asks some why questions, like why? Why do we exist? What are we doing? And we talk through you know, the way churches reach out to different communities. And I'm like, man, the heart of this is found in the text that we're going to be in. right? Paul is saying, I do this because I want people to know Christ. I want people to know Christ. And I want to just say this to you because I think I should. And I don't know if I'm going to say this right, but I'm just going to say it and then we'll post another service, I guess, um, if I get it wrong. But when I stand up here before you, this was not a career choice for me. And listen to me, our church treats my family so well, like so, so well. You know that probably, I'm, gonna, I'm, not, I'm not going to get the statistic exactly correct, but Somewhere around 90% of churches in America are like 100 or less. And out of, out, of, out of that, the majority of those are bivocational situations, which is what I did when I first started. I taught high school, and I, I was also a pastor. Our church is large. Our church, I mean, you guys are generous, and we try to be generous because of your generosity, and God's doing incredible things, and the church is great to us and our family. But in no way is this a career move for me. I'm probably a lot better at a lot of different things, and I'm not great at anything, but I'm probably better at a lot of things than I am at this. But the reason I do this, number one, it's God's leading and God's call. But number two, man, we have to know that there are people that are going through life knowing 10 out of 10 of them will pass away. It's a strong statistic. And they're going through life not knowing that there is a Savior not knowing that there is salvation found in Christ. And there are many people, and this is the really sad part, who flood our churches every week, 
who are a part of the church in terms of attendance and even serving in different areas, but they don't know Jesus. And I have a desire and a passion for others to know Christ. I want to love God and love people and make disciples, but sometimes I get in the way. Sometimes I become too mechanical that the heart of Paul that we see here in verse 3 in particular is not often the heart that I possess. And I want to. So my prayer has been this, God, do a work in my soul. God, remove the barnacles of my soul that have attached to me and caused me to to lack the compassion that I need and the care that I need for the community around me. And Paul is saying, you are my kinsmen according to the flesh. You know, he's he's saying that I'm Jewish and you are Jewish. You're my kinsmen according to the flesh. And I think of a parallel here. How many kinsmen do I have according to the flesh who know not Christ? I've got names of family in my Bible that, in my Bible that I write down. That's not them, by the way. They're written in the Bible. But that I write down in the back of my Bible, there's names of folks in my family that I want to know Jesus. Maybe you have a sibling, maybe you have a spouse, a parent, an aunt, an uncle who need to know Christ. Are you sharing the gospel with them? I remember a pastor friend telling me of the opportunity he had to share Christ with his dad, and he baptized his dad, and it was a glorious uh, opportunity in the church to say, this is my father, but it's also my brother in Christ. It was an amazing opportunity, but he had to have a heart like Paul had here in order for that to happen. How can God rev up my desire to share the gospel? How can I plant seeds in people's life? And I pray you as a believer in the room that you will feel the same way about your life that you'll ask for this desire and passion white hot passion to share the gospel let's look at verses four and five as we close paul is saying that you as israelites you have a lot of privileges as god's chosen nation you have a lot of privileges to you belong adoption to you belong glory and and covenants and the giving of the law and worship and promise Uh, verse five to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is in christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So what he's saying here quickly is that there's some privileges that you experience just being Israel. You're God's chosen nation. You're adopted. The Old Testament calls this adoption, you're the firstborn. We know that firstborns get certain privileges. There are a lot more pictures of my older brother than me because the more kids you have, the more you're like, oh, whatever, right? So like, there's privileges of this firstborn, the glory, that God's glory was, was, was shining a, among them. There's covenants, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the Mosaic covenants that were given, the law. They have the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the civil law for them to operate by. You've got worship, the sacrificial system, which was like a dress rehearsal, all leading to, to Golgotha, which is amazing to think about, uh, which leads to the next thing, the promises. There are over 100 specific Old Testament promises of the coming Messiah. Not only that, Paul points out, even Jesus is in your lineage. He's Jewish. He's born of a Jewish woman. He's in the messianic line of David. Yet in all these things, you are still rejecting the Messiah. And Paul's heart is broken over this. Now, I wonder if the same could be true of us. As Stephen Lawson points out, have you had special privileges in your life of hearing and knowing the truth of the word of God growing up? Did you have parents that took you to church? Did you have a mama that prayed for you? Did you have a daddy that would share Jesus with you? Uh, Oftentimes, we, like Israel, remain unbelieving, even though, even though we have these privileges in front of us. Greater privileges have been afforded to you than even Israel because you live in a day of the fulfillment of the promises, and the Messiah has already come, and he's already kept the law. We have all of this in front of us, but the question remains, have we surrendered all to Jesus? 
So I just want to ask you a heart-searching question. Have you been born again? Do you know the Lord in your heart? Do you have the privilege of being here today and realizing that, man, maybe I've gone through the motions and maybe I've been mechanical and maybe today is a day where I need to really examine my heart and see if I know Jesus. Again, the point is not to make anyone doubt, but I got to tell you this, more so than any other thing throughout the ministry that God has given me, I've seen people who had gone to church, they were even leaders within the church who came to faith in Christ, just like my buddy Skipper. Right? They, and they, they may not have the same story as Skipper. It may not have been this egregious sin that was so overt in their life. But at some point along the way, they saw face-to-face who they really were. And they realized that they had a lot of Christian heritage, but they didn't know Jesus. I wonder if that's true of anyone in this room. And so there's two reasons I wanted to share this today. Here they are. Number one, assess our own hearts. Do we really know Christ? Do you really know Jesus today? Do you really know Jesus? I would say this quickly, even as a kid, I I would have told you I knew Jesus. My grandmama took me to church, and my parents would go sometimes. They definitely hit all the VBSs up, because that's like a free babysitting week, and I did all that stuff, man, and if you were to ask me if I was a Christian, I would have said yes, but it wasn't until I was 16 going on 17 that I realized I didn't know Jesus, Do you know him today? That's the first reason I want us to see this passage and and take that home with us. But the second thing is, like Paul, do we have a compassion and a passion, a zeal to share the gospel with those who know not Christ? Think of it this way. There are 7,000 plus unreached people groups. There are three plus billion people who don't know Jesus. Three out of 10 in our nation identify as religious nuns, meaning they don't believe in any type of religious anything. Uh, There are countless, countless people that fill our pews every day that cultural Christianity is their reality, and it is a mission field for us to pull them out and say, I want you to see the beauty of Christ. He loves you, and he died for you, and it's a personal relationship. We should see people as saved or lost, not Jew, not Gentile, not SBC or PCA, not traditional music or contemporary music. Are we saved or are we not saved? As you go throughout your life, that's a question that you need to ask others and care for them and love them as Paul did. We've got baptisms next Sunday. And if there's anyone here that has not given their heart and their life to Jesus and you want to follow through in believer's baptism, man, what an incredible opportunity you have. The baptism doesn't save you. It's a picture of what Christ has done on the inside. I'd love to talk to you about that. And we have others on staff and leaders in our church that would love to talk to you as well. Jesus is the only one that can say, you are mine, and we are called to surrender to him. So I close by quoting a hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born in the Spirit, washed in his blood is this true of you this is my story this is my song praising my savior all the day long do you know him as lord and savior today we're going to sing about christ alone in just a moment and i pray that we'll sing with all the passion that we have and we'll assess our own hearts and ask the work in us in a manner of which only he can god thank you for your kindness towards us thank you for your word God, I pray as we close out uh, this day, Lord, that you have marked us by your word. God, I pray that we will not forget the truths of your word as Paul has clearly shown what it looks like to care for those who don't know Christ. God, do we have that same care? And Lord, as we look throughout this word, we also see as Paul is ministering to the Israelites and, and 
sharing with them that they are his kinsmen by the flesh, God, may we also see that there are others that are even close to us who don't know you. God, that we have the opportunity to share with them. And may we also assess our own hearts. God, may we also look to you as our hope. Lord, do a work your way. We pray all of this in the powerful name of King Jesus and all God's people said, amen.